Hello and welcome to YHTV's Trinity of Life. This is episode 53. I'm Christina Suzuma, your host of this program. Thank you so much for joining me as I continue to explore the wonderful world of healing arts, meditation, therapies, and the many modalities of helping each of us find balance in our individual journeys. We are always excited to meet those who are on the leading edge of creating change on this planet. Today we shall be speaking of the five Tibetans. And I have to admit, when I was approached by the author a few months ago, I actually didn't, I had heard of the five Tibetans, but I wasn't familiar with it. So here is our guest today, an amazing gentleman whose passion is clearly immersed in the healing arts from yoga to plant medicine. He has authored The Five Tibetans over 30 years ago, and he continues to practice and teach this form to many individuals supporting communities throughout the world. I'd like to welcome Chris Killam. Hello, Chris. Hi, Christine. It's nice to be with you today. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, thank you. We are honored. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know which to call you, yoga guru or medicine hunter or (laughs) a man of the world. Chris Chris is good. I I respond to most friendly titles pretty well. (laughs) Most friendly titles. That's good. (laughs) So, Chris, can you share with us um, a little bit of your background and your history? Do you do you want a yoga background or do you want a sort of a sprawling human epic story? Which one works for you? Oh my! I, I me personally, I love the human epic story. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what we can do if we want to to focus on the yoga background, since we are speaking about yoga. Oh my gosh! What everything you do, it is yoga. So it's it's sort of that balance that we have to find today. Um, um, yeah, why don't we start with the yoga background? All right. Uh, I started practicing yoga daily around, um, oh, the summer of 1970, actually, um, which is a little bit of a while ago. But I, I came to yoga through Transcendental Meditation and also uh, got hold of a book, Richard Hittleman's 28-Day Yoga Plan. And because I was very enthusiastic about yoga, I thought, well, why do in 28 days what you can do in four? So I basically (laughs) went through the whole book and, you know, did everything and discovered that I could actually do it, which was was a delightful surprise for me because I, I... I mean, as a kid, I sat a lot in first Lotus, I mean, in Lotus, and I also uh, did plow pose a lot in front of the TV. I don't know why, but I did. And, um, but other than that, I really didn't have any yoga background or training. I had a natural fascination for it. And once I started, it was like um, a fish discovering water. It was Mm. just an amazing experience for me. And that, uh, as you know, was uh, 43 years ago. And I have from that time forward, maintained a yoga and meditation practice daily and have traveled all around the world in my work investigating medicinal plants, practicing yoga. You know, when I walk into a hotel room or someplace that the very first thing I do is figure out, okay, where am I going to practice? And um, my, my yoga 
got a substantial boost in the 70s when I lived in a yoga ashram for just shy of five years. I actually lived in a kundalini yoga ashram, first in Massachusetts and then in Atlanta, and we were fire-breathing nuts. We (laughs) practiced... We got up at 2.30 in the morning, practiced for four or five hours every day, and then I taught classes. So there were a number of years where my daily routine lasted anywhere from five to eight hours, depending on the number of classes I taught in a day. And while I really think that's extreme, it gave me this tremendous boost for Mm -hmm. practice so that uh, when I sort of backed down to something more reasonable, like a a two-hour daily practice, uh, it just became very, very easy and, and, and not a strain. So I have found yoga a constant companion. I've found the original yoga sutras to be rich in life wisdom that is really beneficial and valuable for me. And I've found people in the yoga community to be generally very sweet and kind and humane and once in a while, I get called out of mothballs to go teach at something like the Midwest Yoga Conference, and I always have a very good time. I mean, yoga is very different from when I got involved with it, but uh, the spirit of yoga persists, and I find you know that I'm I'm delightful to be one of the the many participants enjoying yoga and spreading the word. Now, I'm curious. Um, now, were you you were raised here in the states? I was raised in the States. I was raised right outside of Boston. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was kind of like a, a, a you know, typical suburban kid and had, uh, you know, both my parents worked and I lived in a neighborhood where there were lots and lots of kids my age. Most of the parents had gotten their mortgages on the GI Bill. So I grew up around a lot of kids. And in fact, the kid next door and I used to do uh races across the backyard on our knees in full lotus. It's kind of a weird thing, but we'd, oh. we'd lock ourselves into lotus and then get up on our knees and then charge across the yard knee after knee after knee. And it was you know, the, pretty bizarre. That's so <laughs> funny that you mentioned that because I used to do that. that really? is so You just brought back like a, a moment in my life that I have was locked back here somewhere. Well, yes. there are new, no new ideas under the sun, you see? Wow. There you go. But yeah, yeah. Now, now your your parents, were they even into any kind of health or yoga or anything like that? Well, actually, uh, they were into healthy eating because my dad was a type 1 insulin-dependent diabetic. So hmm. uh, he had to eat clean food. He couldn't eat sugar. We rarely had desserts. Um, we always had salads. I mean, today, you you would look at what we ate and say it was a relatively clean diet, not much by way of fast food or processed food. And that awareness, uh, that understanding of the dietary connection and the health connection uh, proved very valuable later on in life as I made my way into the natural food sector and and do what I do now, researching natural medicinal plants around the world. Mm, Fantastic. And no siblings? No siblings. I, I proved to be, you know, just, just so enough. much. That they, <laughs> you know, we, we couldn't possibly do this twice. So. <laughs> oh, but, you know, isn't that interesting? How fortunate that that through your father's situation that you were actually gifted with such clean eating 
Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I think that, you know, life throws all kinds of stuff at us. For example, my parents were both in radio and TV. My mother was talent and my dad was in the production and sales side. So I grew up with newscasters and disc jockeys and, you know, radio and, and news and uh, sports people. And, and so that exposure led me to media at a very early age, and that has also served me well in, in uh, my career as an adult. So I think, you know, we can draw on the experiences that we have even, even in our formative years and um, mm -hmm. carry them forward throughout life. Now, now, this is so interesting. Were they into transcendental meditation themselves? Is that oh, how you got into all. it? No, no, no. You know, uh, my friends, uh, a friend of ours, uh, a certain friend got into TM and then he told the rest of us about it and it sounded great. It sounded like something we wanted to experience. And so a number of us wound up learning. And then from there, I, I additionally explored uh, various forms of yoga and uh, wound up just going very deeply into non-TM related yogic methods of meditation and, and of course, physical practice as well. Mm, mm, magnificent. Well, that's good. <laughs> now, what did your parents think of all this? Uh, well, you know, I, I, I broke some furniture along the way. I mean, falling <laughs> over, practicing inverted poses and they weren't that keen about that, actually, you know, knocking over <laughs> lamps and, and busting tables and things. But it wasn't like I wrecked a whole furniture store worth of stuff. They, they uh, on the one hand, had an appreciation for me doing whatever it was that I was interested in. And I think, on the other hand, they found it just plain weird at times. <laughs> and after... All this time with you taking these courses and these classes and then living at an ashram, they did they even think of uh, entering in or attempting? You know, my mother, they're, they're both gone. Uh, my mother practiced uh, a little bit of yoga in the mornings for a while, but it really wasn't her. Uh, it really wasn't her thing. She wound mm -hmm. up. She always did something for fitness. She had a, an exercise routine. Um, but in terms of really adopting a yogic life or the precepts of yoga or a, a serious practice, no, neither of them was interested in doing that. I'm, I'm the sole person in my family who, who wound up taking up this path. And, and I'm quick to say that I do not believe that we find yoga. Really. I think that yoga finds us. I think that yoga is a current that runs through all of human history and it picks us up. Um, and it doesn't pick us up because we're special or because we're so marvelous. I think it picks us up be simply because we're adequate for the job of carrying this current forward um, throughout time. And, mm -hmm. and the whole purpose of it is to bring peace and greater health and vitality and understanding and awareness to people. And yoga needs us to move it along through history. So I got picked up and my parents didn't. That's mm. the way it sorted out. Mm, mm, mm. That's quite a, that's quite a journey that you've taken. Now, now you were introduced to, um, it wasn't at that time called the five Tibetans, right? That's what you ended up calling it. Is that correct? 
Right. Um, when I was introduced to the five Tibetans, they were known as the five rites of rejuvenation. Mm -hmm. And I was actually living in the high desert in Southern California in Joshua Tree at the wow. time. And I met a woman who was in her 70s who was from New York. And she was this really funny woman. She was a guru hopper. And she would say, hey, Wait a what's What is a guru name? hopper? Oh, oh <laughs> please, yeah. Oh, yeah. Please, please define what a guru hopper is. <laughs> she had been to every guru there was. I mean, Swami Satchidananda and Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and Vishnu Devananda and... Uh, that crazy guy who started Ekankar and you name it, any guru that came through, any secret mantra that was to be learned, any initiation, she had done it. And she was very fu funny. I mean, a real character. And, and she was, on the one hand, a lovely and warm-hearted and spiritually aware woman. And on the other hand, she was just like a comedian. And, and uh, she would tell me her experiences of being with this particular teacher or that particular psychic. And she was sort of an endless fountain of amusement. And one day she said, you know, I got something I think you'd like. And she gave me a little uh, book by a guy named Peter Kelder. And this book had been published in 1935. And it was called The Five Rites of Rejuvenation. And the very first thing I thought was, wow, really bad title. But uh, the book... <laughs> It was illustrated and it described these methods that uh, you would practice every day and that they enhanced overall vitality and youth and strength and energy. And I found the story compelling. So around, uh, well, this was in 77. I started, I practiced them a couple of times, but I started to practice them daily the following year. And then, and I was, uh, teaching yoga. I'd been teaching yoga since the early 70s. So I incorporated the five Tibetans uh, into my practice. And I also thought uh, five rites of rejuvenation, bad name. Since they supposedly came from Tibet, I called them the five Tibetans. So uh, yeah, I'm the person who actually named the five Tibetans, the five Tibetans. Mm, mm. So, and I've been practicing And that now makes sense since, though. Hey, yeah, yeah. It makes sense. It makes sense. Um, so, I, you know, when um, I, I kept meditating, going, where have I heard this from since I met you? It's like, where have I heard this from? And it finally keyed in. There was a lovely woman in her 90s that I would do Zen meditation with. And she was a yogi. She was the one who did the five Tibetans every day. Uh -huh. And she uh, says, oh, yes. And, now, you know, as I, it just came to me like last night, oh, it was Marie. <laughs> you know? She has since passed, but she was in her 90s when she did. But even in her 90s, she did it. She did an hour of yoga every day, and, but she faithfully did the five Tibetans every day. Well, they're a remarkable uh, series of methods. They take about 10 minutes to perform most physically fit people and reasonably fit, I don't mean super fit, uh, can, can do the five Tibetans. And I always finish my practice with them every day. The last thing I do, uh, to round out my, uh, you know, my asana practice and my practice of different methods drawn from varied traditions is practice the five Tibetans. Now you Launched this book in the 70s, 76, is that correct? 
No, actually, the, the, the five Tibetans, uh, the book itself is a little bit more than 20 years old. I've been practicing these for 35 years, I but see. Uh, it's, it's uh, about 20 years old. And uh, I call it sort of the little book that could. This, the five <laughs> Tibetans great. is now in 27 languages. It's published in more countries than that. I mean, I have volumes of this that I can't read in Japanese and Cyrillic and, you know, alphabets that I don't even understand, let Ooh. alone languages I don't understand. And, uh, you know, I've seen it in, for example, uh, in bookshops around the world. I saw it in the Bombay airport uh, bookstore, uh, which made me very, very happy. I was really kind of excited that I was bringing yoga to uh, Indians. I, I thought that was a good sign somehow. Um, it, it's it's uh, a simple book, and intentionally so. It has methods of meditation in addition to describing and photographically illustrating the mm -hmm. five Tibetans. Um, and really, my objective was to give people a simple volume that they could use for powerful daily practice and a practice that would not be exhaustible, something that would keep giving energy, keep imparting inspiration, keep enabling people to go deeper. And according to the feedback I've gotten, that mission has been accomplished. So I'm, I'm very happy to have participated in the, the yoga scene in this way with this particular book. Oh, absolutely. Now it's 27 languages. That's fantastic. Well, yeah, I'll definitely, yeah. I'll definitely have to see which languages and how they, how and where to get them because of the different communities that we have, you know, around the world. Sure, um, sure. So, so now I, I, wow, this is just amazing. Now, did the form that you have and that you've written about in the five Tibetans, was it altered in any way from the original form that you had learned? Well, in the original book, there was no specified breathing. Mm. And I knew that that was incorrect. Uh, and I had practiced um, some Tibetan yoga and I had practiced some Chinese Qigong. Mm -hmm. And I knew that the breathing in both of those was somewhat different from the breathing, let's say, in a majority of Hatha yoga practices. Um, and, and so I applied breathing to the five Tibetans. Some of it, uh, when people who are used to just practicing, uh, let's say, more conventional methods of yoga, try the five Tibetans, they wonder if the breathing is backwards. Uh, you know, inhaling, when, for example, when the legs come up instead of when the legs go down. Mm. Um, but I was faithful to what I had learned uh, in other methods of Tibetan yoga. So I did modify these that way, and that was the only modification I made. Um, I have seen on the internet, there must be at least 15 or 20 different versions of the five Tibetans now on YouTube, people showing them visually. And I have yet to find any one in which there isn't at least one mistake. So in terms of foot placement or body movement. So I'm, I'm always encouraging people to practice these correctly and to incorporate the breaths as I have. Mm, wonderful. Wonderful. Um, yes. I, I believe the breath, would be a very valuable thing that, <laughs> that you've added oh, yeah. in there. Because oh, really sure. all well, yoga, all yoga practice, it does evolve around the breath. 
Right. You know, it does. And, and and it's funny too, though, Christine, we have drifted in our practice of yoga in this culture. It's become a very physical thing. Mm. And when, and, and, you know, if you've read the yoga scriptures, if you actually go back to the original texts ever written about yoga, asanas and the physical forms represent a very small part of yoga practice, not a significant part of yoga practice. In fact, every major yoga scripture says that there are only two essential asanas, uh, one being siddhasana, which is a sitting meditation position, and the other being lotus, which is a sitting meditation position. I've met many yogis in India who are profoundly wise and uh, lively and startlingly aware and clear-minded and energetic who all they do is yogic meditation. So we've really taken the more physical dimensions of yoga and run with those in this culture. Mm -hmm. And that's actually too bad because without the rest of the practice, without the... Um, you know, the codes of conduct without the daily meditation, without the great emphasis on character and how we choose to live, uh, it really winds up being another form of very pleasant gymnastics, but somewhat mm -hmm. gymnastic nonetheless. So I, I really want people to get the actual spirit of yoga, and the spirit of yoga is spirit itself, tapping into the unlimited, uh, vast, infinite divine, and you know, having that constant connection to govern everything that we do and everything that we are in our lives. Mm -hmm. Beautifully said. You know, very interestingly enough, I you know used to teach other forms of workouts, things like that. You know, everything from jazzercise all the way. <laughs> And every time someone mentioned yoga, I mean, I had a yoga uh, place in front of me when I was maybe about 10 or 11 years old. And I'd look at it and go, oh my gosh, these people are turning themselves into pretzels, you know? And I'd go, I can't do that, you know? And, and I could remember, I think it was my sister-in-law that said, but, but you can, you're young enough to do that. And I'm like, why don't you do it? You know? <laughs> That's the case. And it just turned me off. The pictures and all would just turn me off and go, that's like, as you say, it's like gymnastics. And I'm going, no, my body won't flex like that and et cetera, et cetera. And, and through the years, it was the same thing. No, I'm not interested in yoga. No, I'm not interested in yoga. And yet I ventured into the healing arts of body work, of metaphysics, et cetera. And one day I had wanted to support my fellow colleague that just opened up her yoga studio. <laughs> you know, after, you know, being Asian, I have to give face, right? <laughs> Sweet. And I went and she was teaching the form, um, is called uh, Shivananda. Mm -hmm. And I went and said, okay, you can do this. And because I had already been practicing Zen meditation for a while and different forms of meditation and connecting through healing arts, you know, working on people's bodies and connecting in, wow. I was so locked in from, and she began her classes with breathing exercises first, with pranayama first. Mm -hmm. And already, you know, being caught up in a lot of uh, um, uh, lung issues as a child, I could feel both sides of the lungs open up. I saw everything begin to open up. And then into the asanas. And as I'm doing these asanas and watching and following, 
I could feel the connection and all the chakras aligning. And I was uh-huh. like, wow, what is this? <laughs> and by yeah, the end of class, impressive. amazing. I just sat there and she looked at me and goes, well, and I looked at her and I said, that was simply amazing. <laughs> and she looked at me and she said, was it? I said, uh, I, now I'm concerned that I would get too immersed in it now <laughs> because I, the balance, you know, being involved again, as I say, in the metaphysics and being quite aware of my own body and how each asana I got it already. It was a meditation. Every pose was a meditation and the breath work that went with it was magnificent. And that day changed my whole outlook on what yoga was. Hence why well, Yoga Hub. Sa- hence why Yoga sounds, Hub came to be. <laughs> it sounds like your friend taught a really great class and and did it and did it right, which is a wonderful thing, you know. So that you had a great experience, and and that it is those great experiences that turn us on and carry us for a long time in practice. Yes, yes, I do believe that, and and um, and I agree with you that uh, the way that yoga has been taken on. Uh, in the Western Hemisphere is is very much about the physical form. Um, mm-hmm. I do believe the reason why that her um, her studio didn't reach a, a climax of of like many studios have here on the West Coast is simply because of the style that was taught. Uh-huh. It, it wasn't aggressive. It wasn't the workout. You know, it was so. Um, uh, you got you, you you did get a good sweat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, even in Yin Yoga now, is you get a good sweat when you're doing it right. Um, but people want that that um, pumping, you know, one nasana to the next to the next to the next, right? Right, right, right. Sort of more like a cross training thing rather than it being a work in, which is what it really yeah, is. Yeah, <laughs> a work in. I like that. <laughs> So now with the five Tibetans and some of the poses in it, and it's always these, there are actually six. Well, there is a sixth method that you can do that is not, it's not necessary to practice at the time that you practice the five Metans, uh, excuse me, the five Tibetans. And that is ostensibly for monastic people who are not having sex and want to suppress their sex urges, which clearly is not me, but um, (laughs) in any case, uh, there is a sixth method. But the five Tibetans uh, as a unit of five physical exercises that um, you know, are sequential and that you don't vary. Uh, this is a self-contained group that you can do every day. Mm, mm, mm. So now there is a saying, I do believe, that um, to practice basically and bring in that sexual energy, which is the kundalini energy basically, and to hold it is also extremely powerful. Well, you know, I, I personally don't believe that the kundalini energy is sexual energy. I mean, I think that, that energy uh, manifests within us and around us in a multiplicity of forms. And certainly we can use 
any of the energies that arise within us for uh, practice, you know, whether it's sexual energy, the energy of ambition, um, you know, even even stress energy. Uh, my experience of uh, the Kundalini rising, and I've been fortunate to have a number of Kundalini experiences over my years, I, I don't detect any sexual dimension to it. Um, you know, it, it pretty unerringly starts at the base of the spine and rises up through the, the spinal cord itself to the top of the head and out. But um, there are people who make the claim that the Kundalini is sexual energy. I think that it uh, originates in a similar place as the sex organs, but I think it's a bit more complex than that. Nonetheless, we can, um, we can conserve our energy or we can waste our energy depending on how we live and the behavioral and thought choices we make. And um, certainly if a person is just kind of squandering their sexual energy, they're going to have less energy for practice as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and now, what, what would you feel are some issues that people might run into um, when they are first learning the five Tibetans? Well, I think that the first one, Christine, is the very first method itself, which is a spinning method where you stand and you extend your arms straight out to the sides and you spin in a clockwise direction. There are very few people who can do that the, um, the full 21 times the first time they do it and not fall over or fall down. Uh, that's how I broke furniture, actually. Uh, it's a great method for just, you know, flying over the coffee table. Um, I think, I think it, people, myself included, you know, people like to sort of have it all, all at once. And um, I've met a number of yogis who have started out uh, trying to do these methods the full 21 times each, which is the number of repetitions, and have run into difficulties because they're not familiar with these methods. It takes a little bit of time. Um, within a week or two, you can certainly be doing that if you're a, a, you know, a trained yogi, or a little bit longer if you're not. Uh, I think So I think impatience is um, one thing that people come up against. And inevitably, um, people do fight practice in general. I mean, I find that people fight meditation practice, they fight yoga practice, uh, whatever their discipline might be, whether it's, you know, Zen or Kundalini yoga, there's, there's often a little resistance to practice itself. And I believe that's because practice dissolves the sense of self more and more and more over time. But I think initially with the five Tibetans, it's just getting used to the methods, practicing them correctly, and not being in a super, super hurry to do them 21 times a piece when they're brand new in your life. Mm -hmm. So, so would you would recommend that you just do what you can to begin with? Yeah, you know, I recommend that people start out doing them seven or ten times, uh, seven or ten repetitions, and get used to it. You can mm -hmm. always build up. There's no problem. If you go, well, gosh, this is really easy, then fine, do more. But um, I think, you know, I, I think doing something that's attainable is very important. I've met mm -hmm. people who have, say, come to one of my yoga workshops, and they say, I'm going to go home and practice yoga two hours every day. I know that I know that person 
is not going to be practicing because they're setting too high a bar for themselves. The person who comes away from a yoga weekend and says, you know, I could start out doing 20 or 30 minutes, maybe like four days a week. That's the person I suspect will continue practice because they're setting attainable goals for themselves, something that's easily achievable, and so they can stick with it. So part of the challenge is to make sure that people don't take on so much that they wind up terribly discouraged and quit entirely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So for those people who uh members of my family, you know, <laughs> who just tend to avoid a lot of physical exercise. Um, when I went through your book, Chris, I, I looked at these and I looked at the poses and I thought, wow, this is, this is like so wonderfully condensed and so well balanced that if you told a person that this wasn't yoga, they would have no idea, would they? Well, I, I think that may be so. I mean, some people would, would probably pick up on the similar appearance of some of the methods. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, these could also just be a self-contained physical drill, um, you know, uh, like some sort of a little fitness drill. I mean, they do have that appearance. The difference is that they really open up the centers of energy within you. So you have an energizing, clarifying, harmonizing experience. And that isn't always the case with any, say, five random exercises practiced together. Right. So um, there is a, a an integrated whole body mind spirit effect that takes place with these but yeah i think you could you could probably sell these to people as something other than yoga they might not know it, yeah because it just says five tibetans right now <laughs> right you could say hey this is something that uh, tibetan farmers practice to stay healthy in the field there you know you, you could probably get away with that right 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 <laughs> well definitely clearly it shows uh the the vitality and longevity i mean you clearly show that uh, just, you know, in your whole being, you radiate with the energy and you look fantastic for teaching this for so many years. Well, uh, thank you. I, I mean, I, I think that part of, uh, part of the benefit of yoga practice is being able to share that energy in a variety of ways. And uh, I mean, you obviously have that. There are many other yogis I've met that have that. And it's sort of like that line in when Harry met Sally, you know, I'll have what she's having. When when mm -hmm. you see people who are uh, turned on, who appear happy, who appear healthy, who have lots of energy, who are positive forces, who walk into a, a room and somehow tip the balance in favor of the positive rather than the negative, and from whom people come away from conversations going, wow, I really enjoyed that person. Um you know, if you can be that, then that is the basically the proof of yoga practice in daily life. I mean, I think that uh, the monastic days, the guru days, I think they're totally over myself. And mm -hmm. I know there are people who disagree with me, but I think this is a time for right action and right living in society where everybody needs positive and supportive influences. And 
yoga can't just be a self-satisfying thing that we do to to get ourselves high and go, wow, I really got loaded in that class or whatever. You know, that, that that's not a worthy mission. That's a that's a that's a really lousy mission, actually. Um, it's hey, you know, now that I'm practicing, now that I'm meditating, now that I'm doing these methods, I understand more the interconnectedness of all things. I understand more the the need to be a humane, compassionate, thoughtful loving person in this world. Those are the real yogic goodies. If those don't happen, it's not yoga. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you for sharing that, Chris. I I think you you hit on some very juicy morsels right there. Um, I'm all for juicy morsels. uh, Oh, yes. Yes. Those are wonderful, (laughs) wonderful morsels. Delicious. (laughs) Because I, I, I feel that that is really what's lacking. Um, and when I, when I hear the conversations, uh, about yoga, especially because, uh, we call ourselves yoga hub. The first thing is asked is, Oh, you're a yoga teacher. Oh, you, you know, it's like, no, 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 no. We are the new media for health and wellness. (laughs) It's like, but why do you call yourselves yoga hub then? (laughs) I said, because that's what yoga represents (laughs) balance in life. (laughs) Sure. Sure. So, and, and, uh, through practice, um, and with what you do in your life, which is plant medicine, Chris, um, that we hope to be speaking in depth with you about, uh, in the next shows coming up. Um, the integration of uh, food with the process of of like the five Tibetans or a wonderful yoga practice, um, how it is also able to help us balance body, mind, spirit. Can mm-hmm. you speak a little on that? Well, sure. When when you uh, consider the traditions of yoga, so the the originating traditions are found in India and Nepal and Tibet and China. When you uh, consider them, uh, there is no such thing as practice without attention to the foods you eat and the medicinal plants that you use. Um, in fact, in uh, one of my favorite yogic books, uh, Tibetan Yoga and the Secret Doctrines, which is a, 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 a very large volume that gives a number of the key Tibetan Buddhist yoga teachings. Uh, it says that a yogi must know the medicinal plants. And I think that um, understanding the role that diet plays in health and understanding the use, the judicious use of plant medicines is absolutely essential. It's just like right conduct in yoga. You don't do a a bunch of yoga and then go out and beat people up for fun on a Saturday night. That's not (laughs) yoga practice, you know, that's, that's not what happens. And, um, if you're actually living an integrated yogic life, then by definition, you're also working with the medicinal plants. Uh, these things can enhance all aspects of personal health, um, whether you're talking about digestion or mood or respiration or cardiovascular function or immune function or energy, stamina, endurance, alertness. Um, and so as you're, as you're practicing, if you're also integrating the use of medicinal plants, and there are 50,000 plants around the world that are used as medicines, um, then you have an advantage and you're actually, you know, engaged in an integrated yogic lifestyle rather than just um, certain 
select aspects of yoga as, you know, for example, asanas and physical methods. So from my standpoint, having read and, and greatly appreciating the original yogic scriptures, the Hatha Yoga Pradipika and the Yoganu Sasanam and the Shiva Samhita and the Garaksa Sataka, these other foundation texts of yoga that really describe it in, in, in its fullness, it's very apparent to me that the plants and the dietary measures go hand in hand with the rest of practice. Mm. A question because of your knowledge in plant medicine, um, the difference, not just in the plant medicine, but also the yogic styles between the de- uh, Tibetan and the Indian? Well, what I see is that um, the regionalization of yoga uh, has a lot to do with weather. Uh, for example, yeah. if you go to South India, the yoga that's practiced there involves extreme flexibility, which makes sense. You know, if you go to a hot tropical place, you're much more loose and flexible than if you're in a cold place. Uh, in Tibet, especially in the Himalayan hill region, where a lot of the monasteries were prior to the Chinese invasion and destruction of the Tibetan culture, um, there was a tremendous emphasis on generating heat. So you have, uh, you know, you have heat generating methods uh, that you don't have in the South because the last thing they need in the South is to be hotter. Um, <laughs> and, and there's very little emphasis in Tibetan, you know, like the monastic Tibetan Buddhist yoga on flexibility. There's some, certainly enough to sit comfortably in meditation for hours at a time. Um, so, you know, in a way, yoga methods are a lot like cookery. If you go to Greece, for example, you're going to find a method and style of cooking that is adapted to the ingredients and the culture and the climate. If you go to Russia, let's say to Moscow, it's going to be different. If you go to the South Pacific, it's going to be different still. Um, the yogic methods arise out of a fundamental and essential principle that we are all spirit in a body and that practice helps us to be aware of and completely integrated consciously with that spirit. But the actual methods themselves may vary tremendously. And I have you know, determined that much of that has to do with something as simple as weather and climate and outdoor temperature. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that I mean, when all I lived sense. in the yoga, yeah, I'm sorry for interrupting. Yes. No, go ahead. What you were no, saying? When I lived in the yoga ashram in Western Massachusetts, uh, we didn't have a lot of money, so we didn't spend a lot on heat, and so we did a lot of methods that made us hot because otherwise <laughs> we were cold. <laughs> so, with kind of necessity as the mother of invention here, and. Um, you know, I certainly find that as I transition from winter here in New England, which is where my wife Zoe and I live, to spring and summer here, that my practice annually kind of shifts to more flexibility, flexibility-oriented flexibility methods as the season gets warmer. Mm, mm, makes sense. Well, here in California... <laughs> We stay pretty warm. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah. Um, and your wife practices as well? 
She does. She does. Uh, she started practicing when we got together and, um, you know, she's having her own experience of discovery with yoga practice. And, um, I'm basically around to offer guidance. And other than that, I'm pretty light touch in the matter. Sometimes she'll say, Hey, I, you know, I, I really want to learn some new stuff. And so I'll show her some, some additional things. We meditate together at night and, and, uh, that also just, I think helps with everything else in our lives. Questions has just come in. May I share them with you? Yeah, please. Um, what are the similarities of the spinning to the whirling dervishes? Hmm. Well, with the dervishes, they go and go and go for hours at a time. I mean, I've seen Sufi dancers just spin you know, <laughs> for like, like, a, like an hour. And, wow. and it's really a freeing, remarkable, uh, ecstatic thing that they do with, uh, and so the, the spinning itself is somewhat similar, but in the five Tibetans, you only do it, uh, for 21 times. And I, I'm quick to say that these were the instructions that Peter Kelder outlined in his original book in 1935. And there are no other guidelines than that. Pretty much everything derives from what he described. Hmm. Uh, so what would happen if you did each of these a thousand times a piece? I have no idea, really. Um, I've always practiced the five Tibetans the way they were described, but certainly... Uh, I have at times just for fun, um, in fact, a few times when I've done presentations for groups, I've just stood up on a stage and spun for five or ten minutes and talked, which people find endlessly amusing. But <laughs> I think the similarity is that the spin spinning is spinning, but in the case of the Sufis, uh, they're doing it as a method of ecstasy for long, long periods of time. It's amazing. Um, oh, yeah. it, 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 you know, and it's so interesting because I remember being taught a long time ago that even with children, like with babies, yeah, people are very careful and cuddle their little newborn babies, were to actually hold them and spin with them. Well, you know, this is uh, exercise for the inner ears, for the mm -hmm. eustachian tubes. It's like doing inner ear push-ups, really. Um, it is the case that if we don't use different parts of our bodies, um, we will lose function with them. And we see a common uh, health problem among elderly people is that yes. they lose balance, they fall down, and they break bones. And this is very serious. If you can maintain strong legs and strong posture uh, and also maintain good balance by doing balancing poses and by the spinning, you can help to avoid a very, very common uh, health problem. I think it's hard when somebody's in their 20s or 30s or even 40s to imagine their 80s or 90s mm. and to think uh, when they practice and not only uh, in not only have the integrating conscious experience, the whole experience of spirit, but also to be aware that they're making an investment in something uh, that hasn't taken place that is decades from now. Yes. But uh, we can practice these methods to make our senior years far more bearable and enjoyable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I got to tell you, I can't wait to get my 87-year-old 87, 87 mother to spin. <laughs> 
just have her spin three times slowly to start. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, that you know that that's true. The hearing starts to go, and and they don't believe that it can improve. Which that's the sad part of you know the society today is like, oh, I'm old now, or or that's what they're led to believe, and. Of course, our medical system sometimes doesn't help in that in that manner where they go, oh, well, you know, just keep disintegrating. It doesn't. <laughs> sure. Well, and also you, you, you do encounter a lot of uh, doctors and people who are healthcare practitioners who are in very poor health. Oh, so yes. their expectations of what is possible are extremely limited. I mean, I, I've been fortunate to spend time with some very senior yogis, uh, one man who I... Uh, spent three weeks with a, a Swami who was 83, had been practicing yoga since he was 18, and he was spectacular. And the thing that impressed me about him was his unflagging kindness. And I thought, wow, you know, I'd like to be half the person this guy is when mm -hmm. I'm his age. And then I also studied um, a method of meditation with a yogi who was, I think at the time, 91. And he was this beautiful looking man with clear mind and great eyes and beautiful skin. And I just thought, you know, this guy should be on the cover of every health magazine. <laughs> <laughs> and no doubt he is so humble that he wouldn't even approach it, right? <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Yeah, it is quite amazing. We, we, I did a wonderful inspirational interview with uh, a woman by the name of Phyllis Suze here in California. And uh, she you know, through her years, she always, uh, as she would say, I poo-pooed yoga. <laughs> uh -huh. Well, Phyllis started her yoga practice when she was 84. Wow. And wow. she just turned last month 90. That's remarkable. That's uh, remarkable. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. She started at 84. Uh, she was 90. And in the interview we did with her, she uh, is seen doing the peacock. Oh, amazing. Isn't amazing. it? I mean, I can't even yeah. do the peacock. <laughs> like I'm watching her going, Phyllis. And she says to me, she does about, in total, I do believe she said about two hours of yoga, two to three hours of yoga every day from the pranayama in the morning in bed and the stretches. And then she does goes to her class after breakfast and then comes home, takes a nap. And then she goes <laughs> to her, tang uh, her tango classes. <laughs> and she's a tango dancer, which she, and she says, I will not be able to tango if I don't do my yoga. Right. So right, they go right. hand in hand and that's her full day. <laughs> that is fabulous. Isn't that, it? Well, I, I think it is never too late. Uh, but of course it's a tremendous privilege and advantage to take these things up earlier. I mean, However, it is that, you know, you come to it, you know, in your case through Zen meditation, which I think probably gave you innumerable practice advantages, or in my case, uh, you know, shortly after becoming initiated in TM, what, whatever it is that can move us into yoga practice, if it's something that we can do earlier in life, I think that just makes everything else in life that much better. Yes, yes, I absolutely agree with you. Uh, we had a comment that came in. So this is a great practice for someone with terrible equilibrium? <laughs> well, I think that if a person has terrible equilibrium, then they certainly know one of the potential problems that they face as they age. And um, 
in that case, I mean, if a person has really bad equilibrium, then I would suggest that they try spinning, you know, three times really slowly. I mean, turtle slowly. You know, you can always start someplace. You can always start doing one push-up. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I would say that if a person has bad equilibrium, um, they already know that they're going to encounter difficulties down the road. So getting into the spinning now could could be a tremendous preventive thing to do. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Um, another question that came in. Uh, how do you find and create a well-rounded yogic practice? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I, I sort of like uh, what Bruce Lee said about the martial arts. He said, absorb what is useful. All the time people say, what kind of yoga do you practice? And I say, yoga, yoga. <laughs> and, you know, they, they, they want me to say, oh, I practice Ashtanga or Anusara or Ayanga, whatever. No, yoga, yoga. Um, I have found that I uh, have a wonderful practice derived from classical Hatha yoga and Kundalini yoga and Tibetan yoga and Chinese Qigong and methods that I've learned from different systems, including Iyengar and Ashtanga and and others. And I've put them together in a way that is satisfying and whole for me and that works for me. I think that um, a lot of yoga appeals to certain temperaments one more than another. So if Mm. a person is new to yoga, then I think it's worth trying different styles and methods and finding out what you like and not being uh, conned into believing that any one of them is the superior system, because that is not so. Uh, It's never the case that it's the yoga system that's superior. Uh, It is often the case that the yoga practitioner has superior attention. Mm. Um, so I think try out what you like. You might find that eventually after doing a whole number of classes, you want to create an amalgam that is yours and yours only, which is how all these systems ever got designed in the first place. Somebody did that. Mm. You know, much of yoga today was derived from the British military physical fitness drills that, that Indian people learned during the Raj era and that weren't yoga methods at all. So, um, you know, take those things that, that you like. I also recommend that people try methods that they find difficult and practice them say for two or three years every day until they don't, until they don't mind practicing them anymore. I think that's also a method worth doing. I used to really hate bow pose. And so I did it every year for, or every day for about four or five years. And then finally I loved it. Now I don't do bow pose anymore, but I don't care one way or another. <laughs> Sounds like me with the crow. <laughs> took me a right. year and a, took me a year and a half. <laughs> Only a year and a half. Only a year and a half. How wonderful. (laughs) Oh, my. Um, So uh, a question is, how would you know which form to become certified in? Well, I'm probably the wrong person to ask uh, in that regard because I've never been certified in anything. I mean, I've, I've taught for about 42 years, but I... I, you know, I've never undergone a certification course. Um, no, I mean, my training, 
I probably trained about five, 6,000 hours in yoga. So, um, you know, studying with other people, but, um, I don't know. I, I, you know, I, I'm neither a fan of, nor a critic of certification. I would say pick a, a system that you like if certification is what you want. Um, and more importantly, pick a teacher that you can respect and you can trust. Um, in the yogic scene, as in all other scenes, there are opportunists, there are egomaniacs, um, there are people who are in it for the money, um, and then you have a lot of sweet, lovely, high, humane, wonderful people who are doing it to spread the dharma. It's the latter person that I want to uh, study from. I would much rather study from an unknown whose heart and mind are completely intact mm -hmm. than study with somebody who's a celebrity who needs um, a Rolls Royce and uh, flashy jewelry to get around. Mm -hmm. Well, that was a wonderful answer. Thank you. Um, so <laughs> we are <laughs> we're coming to the top of our hour, Chris. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you would like to share with our audience? Well... I think I think it's that um, yoga helps us to realize the sacred in daily life. Um, yoga doesn't create union. The union uh, is always there. I mean, we're never not a part of the universe. We're never actually separate from anything else. Uh, but we don't realize that unity. And yoga helps to helps us to realize that unity. And the real realization of that means that we live that unity. So uh, we live more humane, we live more compassionate, we live more thoughtful, we live more wise, we don't take advantage of others. Um, so, so really, you can draw from this deep, 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 ceaseless well of inspiration and life and divinity. And I can't think of anything that's more wonderful than that. Mm. Lovely. Thank you so much for sharing that, Chris. Mm. Oh, it's just been wonderful spending time with you. Thank you. <laughs> Same here, Christine. I've enjoyed it. I, 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 has an hour flown by? Is that what has an taken place An hour has here? flown by. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> it's kind of like when you meditate and then the gong goes off and you go, I thought I just sat down. I, wait, right. stop. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Chris, for honoring our community. It, it really is a joy. And I just wanted to hold up your book here to show everyone. And we will also have... Uh, um, the links to it. Now, uh, I'm assuming, do you, is this available through your site as well? Yeah, you can go on to medicinehunter.com, which is uh, my website. And there's a whole yoga section there too. Uh, but you'll find the five Tibetans in the book section. You'll find the five Tibetans on amazon.com, Barnes and Noble. The publisher is Inner Traditions. Uh, they do a lot of yogic and spiritual mm -hmm. books. It's pretty easy to find. I mean, like I said, it's in it's in more languages than I can read. So. Oh, yes. I, I can't wait to find the Chinese versions of this, you know. <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, oh, you I, can I understand mean, them. I can't. No, actually, I can't. But I ha I'm dealing with a whole community and trying to raise awareness in the community. Okay. So it'd be wonderful, you know. Sure, <laughs> I want to know what sure. the Tibetans think about all this. <laughs> well, actually, um, that was something I wondered, too. And, and I, I wrote different people over time 
uh, trying to get confirmation that these actually were Tibetan in nature. And I eventually got word uh, back through somebody from a Tibetan Lama who, who said, oh, yeah, yeah, no, you know, the, I know these methods. These, these, in fact, are Tibetan in nature. So that's the best, that's the best information I've got. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, if I run into anyone who is uh, Tibetan, I will definitely ask them what they think Fantastic. about your book in 27 languages. <laughs> so thank you so much, Chris Killam. And uh, we look forward to having you back here on YHTV, whether it be here on uh, Trinity of Life or the Magical Medical Tour. And, well, thank um, you, Christine. It's yeah. been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you. Um, And of course, I would like to thank the Yoga Hub team for making all this possible. And to each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're grateful for your continuous support, and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. We invite you to join us live on Tuesdays for Magical Medical Tour at 10.30 a.m. Pacific, 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Wednesdays for Trinity of Life at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern followed every other week with Flowing into Awareness with Anatara. And also, if you would like to ask us any questions, leave us any comments, um, if it's easier for you to dial in, um, you can dial into 818-LET'S-TALK, which is 818-538-7825. And for those of you who might like to um, see the inspirational story of uh, Phyllis Sues, our 90-year-old friend. Um, That is our episode 25 on Trinity of Life, and it is titled A Dance of a Lifetime, and quite a lifetime she's had. Thank you so much, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Namaste. So if you choose to be happy, you're going to have more happy people around you. And, and you know, happiness and I mm. always say, you know, just that simple smile, mm-hmm. it's infectious. <laughs> and you know what? Even, and this is in my book too, even if you don't feel happy about something, mm-hmm. even if you just put in a fake smile, your body's chemicals, the hormones in your body start shifting. Mm. 